710 ESPN presents The Experience with Laverne Cusack, where we go beyond the play and focus on athletes, fans, events, and the biggest issues that inspire and shape our lives. Here's the host of The Experience, Laverne Cusack. Laverne Cusack. We're talking healthy recipes for the big game with celebrity chef David Ruggiero. Ruggiero honed his culinary skills in France. His rise to fame began as the chef at the legendary New York eatery La Caravelle. We're going to find out just exactly what goes on in the kitchen of master chefs here on 710 ESPN. David, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Tell us about your background, David. I'm born in Brooklyn, if you can't tell by my accent. (laughs) And uh, somehow I found my way to France. And I spent uh, almost two years in France in some of the best restaurants there. And I came back to New York. And in those days, back in the uh, early 80s, one of the best restaurants in New York was a restaurant called La Caravelle. And at La Caravelle, I ended up becoming the chef, executive chef. I cooked for five U.S. presidents, you know, and I went on to um, own my own restaurants. I had my own series on PBS, Food Network, wrote cookbooks. And now I'm here with Laferne. <laughs> two of us are two football fans about to talk about what we're going to eat, eat uh, right before the big game. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So let's get into it, shall we? I know absolutely. you you also posted all these recipes up on your website, uh, davidugerio.com, yeah. R-U-G-G-E-R-I-O.com. Yes, all right. yes. And well, you know what's good about these recipes? They're not snooty recipes, right? <laughs> I'm a football fan, all right? I'm a New York Giants football fan. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're not playing this year. But uh, I put up recipes. Look, uh, we're all tired, right? Beer and chips, we can do much better than that. Yes. So you know what? Let me ask you a question. Who doesn't love taquitos? Oh. Those crunchy little filled, rolled up tortillas, and they're crisped in the oven. And in my recipe, I fill them with, with braised bis- brisket. I mean, you could use another kind of beef. And they are... I say, dare, you know, I talk about here, I dare you to eat one chip, I dare you to eat one taquito. <laughs> He's a killer, killer, right? right? Now, we go from there, right? And you say, my God, what am I going to do now? And uh, it's the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is dips, dips, and more dips. But I come up with a couple of ones that are recognizable, but delicious. I mean, who doesn't love Oh, it's the Super Bowl. Super Bowl and buffalo wings is like spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> right. You gotta have the two, right? right? So I made a dip with the buffalo chicken dip, right? But I'm not gonna make you go nuts and roast chicken and all this kind of bologna. No. I tell you, go out and get a nice rotisserie chicken from your local market, and I make the recipe with that. Spicy. You swear you close your eyes. You swear you're eating the buffalo wings. It's really, really, they're all choking aside. It's delicious. And then you think, what else is too terrific? What else is good during the Super Bowl? Everybody loves jalapeno poppers. Oh, yes. So I made a dip with that. Spicy. It's just slap you behind when you eat this. <laughs> I'm telling you. Makes you sweat. Oh, my. It's really, really. Uh, it's, it's, it's delicious. Now, the I, big game. Yes. Big game, right? Kansas City versus San Francisco. Right. Kansas City, arguably the home of Bob Barbecue. Right. Exactly. Now, can you say after me, 
burnt end brisket sliders. Ooh. Oh. Child, please. Those are. <laughs> um, I made my own. I'll give you a recipe for killer barbecue sauce. And you cook this. And this little brisket's now. San Francisco is over there on the West Coast screaming, hold it, wait a minute, mm -hmm. wait, forget about the brisket. <laughs> San Francisco, arguably the greatest crab in the world. I can put together another slider. We have to be comparable, slider versus slider. Right. Crab cake sliders with really delicious tartar sauce and stuff. You don't even need napkins because you're going to lick your fingers. You don't need them. <laughs> then you've got some smart aleck in the background saying, yeah, but what are you going to do? All right, wise guy. What are you going to do for dessert? Don't worry about it. <laughs> We're still on the dip, uh, the, the dip craze here, right? Yes. How about... Um, who doesn't like a marshmallow? A marshmallow dip with fruit, fresh fruits around it. It really is not that fattening. You know, it's probably only about 5,000 calories per uh, lipful, but who's counting here? It's the Super Bowl, right? And I got to tell you, it's not like a high-end, put-your-nose-in-the-air food. This is down, down-home good cooking. This is sit you. The people drinking the beers not even going to know you took their chips away and you slip these dishes next to them. They're really, all joking aside, they're really, really very good. And when you see the recipes, you're going to say, are you kidding me? Really that easy? They are. They're really, really that easy. Right. When, so, I, when I looked at the recipes again on your uh, website, davidruggerio.com, I was like, oh, I can actually make these. It doesn't look hard at all. Uh, no, they are. <laughs> they're really easy. And you know something else? I wear like good cut corners, like on uh, my little taquitos, right? Mm -hmm. I use the canned Cuban beans that I even tell you the, the brands that sell it. So you don't have to cook your own beans and stuff like that. And uh, like I told you, the rotisserie chicken for the buffalo uh, uh, chicken dip. So where I can cut your corn, listen, we're only hours away from the game. Mm -hmm. You ain't got time to go and uh, cook uh, the king's uh, meal over here. Right. So I give you some, I cut you some corners here, so you make it in time for kickoff. Yes, yes. Uh, can we talk about Kansas City? What makes Kansas City have great barbecue? Well, Kansas City, you know, there's some really famous. You even go in the supermarkets and you can see the sauces. And it's Kansas City sauces, unlike other parts of the country that don't use the sauce, where maybe they use vinegars and so forth like that. Kansas City got it down to a perfection of a blend of the smokiness of the wood that they use and the sauces. And that combination has made their, their barbecue really unique. And for a lot of people, we'll say really it's the, the home, the first home of barbecue in this country. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, you know, you go in Kansas City and it's one place after another. And it's, it's all, you know, Kansas City was the hub when the years ago when they were shipping cattle down to the slaughterhouse. This was the hub where, where they're like a transfer. And what happened was the cheaper cuts of meat were left behind in Kansas City. Mm. And that's how they developed the barbecue because they had these tough, you know, these tough, very hard cooked, you know, the long cooking uh, cuts of meat, beef. And this is how that Kansas City barbecue came to came to pass. And it really is. It's very different than the South. 
let's say Texas and so forth. It's a very different kind of barbecue. But I'll tell you, be honest with you, it's my preference. I, I really love it. Now, is it sweeter than the South or is it, how is it different? It is sweeter because the sauces do have sugar in them. Some of them have molasses and uh, some of them have brown sugar. The recipe that I give you on on uh, my site, I use brown sugar. So it is very different than if you like, let's use the 180 degree turn of like Texas, that area down there, where these are vinegar based uh, um, mop sauces and so forth. These are sweeter based and uh so they yes they are they are sweeter to answer your question. Okay. And so when you chose this Kansas City burnt ends brisket sliders for the big game, what in the ingredients can you say stands out the most for you? Well, there's the, there's the combination of uh, the the combination of the tomato, the brown sugar and so forth and the whole idea of this burnt end here years ago when they did briskets and so forth, literally they were, they used to chop off the burnt end, the burnt end of the briskets. Not exactly burnt, but you know, mm-hmm. the, the well, well, well cooked ends. And when they added them with some barbecue sauce, someone came to, to said, wait a minute, these may, this may taste better than the, the main part of the brisket. <laughs> so this, this, they really are delicious, these, these ends, these tips. But in this recipe, you don't have time to go running around and collect burnt ends and briskets. Right. So I gave you a recipe using the whole piece of meat. <laughs> so, uh, but I think after you taste it, after you cook it, I think you'll say, well, it came pretty close. If you've had it before, it came pretty close to the real deal. And uh, I think it's really, really very good. Yes. And then again, you chose the San Francisco crab cake sliders. Now, yes. now tell us about the San Francisco and crab cakes. What makes them so much more delicious than other parts of the country? Well, it's I use in this this particular recipe. I use Dungeness crab, which from the uh, shadows of the Golden Gate, uh, the fishermen are fishing the Dungeness crab, and all around that area, that bay area, you know, it's from the boat to the market. You're talking a couple right. of hours, right? And it's the freshest, I mean, most succulent crab. Um, that, you know, there are a lot of uh, the coastal parts of the United States that boast great crab. But that Dungeness crab from that area is very, very sweet, very meaty and chunky. And, uh, you know, I didn't do a lot with this recipe because I don't think you have to. The, the crab meat itself is just so delicious. The worst thing in the world, I think, when people don't crab cake is when they start adding stuff and mashing them around and destroying. <laughs> That's not what what makes a great crab cake. I think it's just the best crab meat. And the Dungeness crab meat from San Francisco is really unique. And then just very simply put together with a little bit of binder, a little bit of mayonnaise. And you'll see in the recipe that the sweetness and the, the vibrancy of that crab meat from the bay really stands out in that crab cake. And uh, I believe that that sweetness of the crab, now you're hearing it from me, <laughs> is going to bring San Francisco home to win it all this year. <laughs> Sorry, Kansas City. 
thumbs up to the crab. We think we're going to kick the boat, uh, the boat ends behind. I'm a defensive guy, defensive-minded guy, and Nick Bosa is going is gonna to bring his crab cakes to the field and win the game for us. All right. All right, David. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> you heard it here. I... From a Brooklyn kid. <laughs> now, what I love uh, is what you have in here, the jalapeno popper dip. So my yeah. mom she was Jamaican. She would have this, this jar of spices that she marinated for years in the refrigerator. And whenever she would make dishes, she'd pull out that bottle of peppers and the juices and she would pour it in whatever dish she was making. And at that time, I couldn't appreciate how delicious it was because I'm like, Oh my God, it's spicy. It's hot. Now yeah, I see you guys, uh, mm-hmm. you guys, Jamaica. It's the home of the, 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 I mean, habaneros and stuff like that. Your mother must have had a, a wealth of, uh, of chilies and spices. Yes. Second to none in Jamaica. Absolutely. Second to none. Absolutely. And when I look at these jalapeno popper dip, I'm like, oh, okay, yes, he put some flavor in it. <laughs> no, I did. But I also have to take into consideration that there's a lot of people out there that if you put just a little bit of spice in it, they go, ooh, it's a little hot here for me. <laughs> so for the, the the real the real people, uh the the the, the you know Pick it up, you know, put more. Yes. Don't worry about it. You can put a lot more <laughs> heat in this, in this recipe, you know, and it won't be a problem. But, uh, I, I gave that for the, uh, you know, the, uh, the good housekeeping reading people that, uh, <laughs> that, that's the, that's the level of heat in that recipe. Oh, okay. Yeah. That looks really, <laughs> really good. And again, go to davidruggerio.com, R-U-G-G-E. R-I-O for all these tips and recipes. Okay, so let's get down to the buffalo chicken dip. Now, I know, and as well as you know, there is no Super Bowl party without the buffalo wings. And now you have the buffalo chicken dip. What makes this stand out? Well, two things. For all of us who tried to do buffalo wings at home before, during the Super Bowl, good luck to go and find fresh chicken wings at this time of the year. <laughs> Unless your last name is Padot, you ain't going to have much chance of finding them. Really? I why? Mean, because it's why. I mean, it's the number one selling oh. uh, meat item in the supermarket right. at this time of the year. I mean, they could charge where they could tell you to go get a mortgage on your house to buy them <laughs> and you would. I mean, uh, it's just, it's just not enough chicken with you. Let's be honest. One chicken only got two little wings to give to his, uh, to the, to his country. So, uh, there's not enough for, for the world. So what I did was, again, we're only hours away from the, the, the big game. So forget about going looking for chicken wings. <laughs> I told you in the recipe, I tell you, just go out and get a rotisserie chicken. You don't have to kill yourself and roast the chicken. Mm-hmm. There's, I tell you what, a lot of these supermarkets, they're very good rotisserie chickens. And when you see chickens at that point, a three pound chicken for $7, $8, $6, I mean, you couldn't, do, you can't do it. You said that's cooked meat. You can't do it cheaper. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I take that meat. Good, good quality, and I give you the same flavorings that are in the uh, in the, the buffalo wings, right? Mm-hmm. And serve with the tortilla chips, you no, know, or sliced baguette, the nice French baguette, toasted a little bit. So it really is delicious. And uh, like I said, I mean, if you got uh, a dozen people in the house, you're going to need like seventy-five pounds of chicken wings. Forget about it. <laughs> right. 
Forget it. Here, get two rotisserie chickens. Nobody will know. Nobody will be the wiser. And it's really delicious. Really, all joking aside, it's really delicious. So uh, another thing, you know, just going back to my mom, just another thing is uh, she made this macaroni and cheese that was nice and spicy. There, th- oh. that It was like... I mean, it, it was heaven, and it was like, oh, my God, Mom made the mac and cheese, right? <laughs> right? Now, for you others, I'm sure a lot of people right now are saying, Fern, my mother made mac and cheese, too. I know what you're talking about. Now, for the Super Bowl, take your mother's mac and cheese. Like, for you listeners out there, like what Fern just said, take your mother's mac and cheese and take some jalapenos <laughs> and chop them up if you you faint the heart. Take the seeds out. If you're not faint the heart, leave the seeds and put them in your fa- your your family's favorite mac and cheese. And now you got a Super Bowl favorite. I mean, fine. Now you've had a lot of mac and cheese. Am I right? Or <laughs> yes, am I wrong? you are right. That's murderous, <laughs> murderous. <laughs> but what you about know? the seven cheese macaroni and cheese? That's outrageous. Yeah, but uh, you know, we're not all in the neighborhood like you. We fight <laughs> seven cheeses all the time. <laughs> I live in a neighborhood where they, they count feta as one of the seven, and I ain't putting feta cheese in a in a mac and cheese. I'm sorry. Never going to happen on my, in my kitchen. What type but, of cheeses uh, do you put in? Of course, the king is the cheddar, right? Everybody got to put a cheddar cheese. Right. You know, the cheddar, the Monterey Jack, those those. Please don't put American cheese. Those ones wrapped in the plastic. <laughs> oh, My no! friends out there, oh, if no. you go, if you to put, if I catch you unwrapping slices of American cheese no. out of that wax paper, the oh, plastic, no. and put it in mac and cheese, I'll come to your house and I'll, uh, I'll give you a smack on your behind. <laughs> don't do it. But you gotta understand something too. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm from Brooklyn over here. We're an Italian neighborhood. We had Parmigiana to the, to the, you know, we had Parmigiana to everything, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and sometimes instead of putting, when you put the stuff on the, the deodorant under your arms, you throw a little Parmesan under there. So, <laughs> so, we so Italians could smell each do. other from like 25 feet away. We recognize each other. But, uh, Parmesan is a, a, you know, really, it's a nice, nice addition to the mac and cheese, right? Yes. Uh, if you never had tried it before, and I'll tell you something else, you put it on top at the end and it gives you that, adds to that crunchiness. You know, of that, the macaroni that's sticking out. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. And that's super crispy in the oven. Well, the uh. Parmigiana adds to that. And that's the one that, between that and the corners of the pan, that's all burnt a little bit, everybody fights for. Yes. That's the best part of the mac and cheese. Oh, my gosh. It's so delicious. So, right? yeah, absolutely. And, again, I, I mean, I can't even put those words in my mouth with the cheese that you take out of the wrapper. Just don't. Oh. Just don't. <laughs> shame, 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 shame. With Jamie, I'm gonna come to your house. I'm gonna bother you. Don't do it. Right. <laughs> so, tell me about your journey to La Caravelle. Well, you know something. I was now again. We got to remember this is the late seventies, early eighties. Okay, and uh, I was. I had just left, and I was a football player too. I had. Uh, I was a pro fighter, and. Uh, I also was a, I played a one year at the University of Miami. I'm a cane. Mm. So, uh, I had come, uh, I had come, uh, they had found out I was a pro fighter. I couldn't play football anymore. Oh. So I didn't know what to do. 
And it's like everybody, like a lot of the guys off the streets of Brooklyn, we could be us, BS our way into anything. So I went to a local bookstore in a mall. I bought some French cookbooks. I memorized some terms. And I showed up at the door with Caravelle, the kitchen door. And I started rattling off these French terms, which I butchered. They didn't even sound French. <laughs> and the chef looked at me like, are you kidding me? And uh, God's honest truth is the truth. I went back 13 times. I wasn't going to give up. Right. So the guy on the 12th to 13th time, the only reason I got the job is the guy had had a stroke of a heart attack the day before. Oh, my. And the sous chef, because there was no friend, there was only French in the kitchen. And uh, the sous chef needed someone to fill in. And he got the job, and that's how I, I found my way into uh, the kitchens, the vaunted kitchens of La Caravelle. And uh, it was, for someone out of, it was another world. Mm -hmm. For someone that could take the train and be home in 45 minutes from where I was working, it seemed like a million miles away. Those kitchens in those days, we were 45 in the kitchen, and not a word was spoken. Everything from the, from the first customer to the last customer. The detail was beyond belief. Nothing was, nothing was, everything was perfection. Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as not being perfect. And, you know, I, uh, after about a year, I had asked the chef, um, unfortunately, I learned a lot of bad words in the kitchen. They used to, <laughs> I, I learned every bad word. They called me every name under the sun. And after a year, because I wasn't French, well, I couldn't become French. I said, well, if I can't be French, come French, maybe if I study in France. So after I got cursed out one day, I said, chef, I can't become French. Would you send me to France? And a week later, I landed on the shores of uh, in Nice, and uh, I went to work at the Hotel Negresco in Nice. It's the chef at the time is, was a very famous chef. The chef, the chef's name was Jacques Maximin. He had been voted by the Gomeo as the number one young chef in France. And I spent 14 months with him. Mm. And he opened my eyes to what cuisine could truly be. Really? Yeah, it was, it was the second day I was there. Maximin did not speak English. And the second day I worked there, walked in there, they were setting up cameras. And I don't know if you guys, all your listeners remember, Robin Leach, yeah. the Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And they were doing an episode of in the, in the dining room with, uh, with Maximan on Lifestyles of the, the Rich and Famous. Mm -hmm. And from there, after 14 months, I was ready to go back to America. But he said to me, I want you to see some other things before you go back. He sent me to a small restaurant in the southwest of France. It was in the middle of nowhere. This is before GPS, okay? We didn't have <laughs> cell phones and GPS. Couldn't find the place. And we completely lost it. And all of a sudden, I turned, and there was these palm trees. And there was this restaurant. And the name of the chef, his name was Michel Girard, still alive. He created a firestorm. He changed cooking, not in France, in the world. Mm. He created what's called the Nouvelle Cuisine. He changed the way cooking was done completely. And I had the, he, I always, I said, and I have a memoir coming out at the end of the year. And I say in that memoir, he was at the foot of the Pyrenees. And at the foot, the foot of the Pyrenees, I found this little wizard. He was a little guy with this big beak. I mean, really, he was a strange looking guy. But he was, it was like going 
It was like a religious experience. Really? Now, remember, I'm only a year away from, back from Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. So <laughs> for me to tell you, it was a religious experience. You could bet your bottom dollar it was a religious experience. <laughs> I was seeing halos. I mean, this guy was something else. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that. If anybody in your listening uh, uh, world there ever worked in the kitchen, they know what's called the family family meal, okay? Yeah. And a family meal is the most important meal of the day because that's what we get to eat, the, the workers, right? Now, remember, I'm in the southwest of France. I'm in the middle of nowhere, okay? Family meal is very important to me. So the first day of the ride, they put out this, this pot. We all gathered around this big table, and it looked like a rabbit, but it looked a little small. Mm-hmm. A little strange. So I says to the guy sitting next to me, I says, excuse me, uh, what is this? And the guy said to me in French, it's Echo Roy. I have, a I have no idea what Echo Roy is. So I run <laughs> to my bunk, I grab out my dictionary, I go through the pages, and I says, oh, no, 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 no. Uh-oh. Yeah, I'm not even squirrel. Oh. It's going to happen today. The next day, I go to the family meal, all hoping, looking, you know, I, I peeked the look, and at least there wasn't little, little chopped up pieces of meat. It's a big piece of meat, but it looked black. Mm-hmm. I don't what is this? I says, oh, I said to the same guy, let me ask you a question. What is this? <laughs> the guy says to me, cheval. Well, I didn't need the dictionary for that. I know me a horse. <laughs> oh, my God. I walked <laughs> two, almost three miles to some gas station, and on the back of this guy's gas station, on the thing, he sold some, of course, they sell cigarettes all over France, but in between the cigarettes, he had 14 cans all dusty and dented, probably 20 years old, the chef boy uh, did macaroni. <laughs> I said, I'll take them all. And I walked back there, and I went back to the kitchen, and on these million-dollar stoves, here's Ruggiero with a can opened of chef boy. Oh, evening. no, you didn't. Up, and here comes Gerard, the most famous chef in the world, looks at me and started to live. He's an Italian from Brooklyn who eats macaroni out of a can. Oh, no. And that's the God's, the God's honest truth. <laughs> So, bring bring uh you know, bring uh sea rations if you go to France. That's the bottom <laughs> bottom line of the story. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's outrageous! How, yeah. how how can you eat out of a can, David? <laughs> yeah, well, let me ask you a question. You're gonna you're gonna eat something you just rode the day before. Not me. <laughs> I'll eat the can. <laughs> Forget about it, right? <laughs> I rode him in Prospect Park. What do I know about eating a horse? Oh. We don't eat horse in Brooklyn. Right. We eat a lot of strange things, but not horse. What's gonna happen? That reminds me of a story when I was in uh, Jamaica. That we were having a a party, and my uncle pulls out a goat's head. And I was horrified. I was, you know, maybe nine or 10. I was horrified. And he's, you know, chopping up the meat and stuff. And then they lay everything out on the table. And I didn't know which meat was the goat. So I didn't eat any of the meat. <laughs> I was just horrified. Well, for us, uh, for the Italians, we're so, I come from southern Italy. Dude, that's tradition is the sheep's head, especially at Easter. And they just split the head in half. So you see it all. The eyeball is still there. The tongue is giving you a little wave at the table. And that's very <laughs> traditional. I mean, to this day, I mean, in Brooklyn, not only in Brooklyn, in southern Italy, that's very, very traditional on menus. Very much so. 
experience never stops. Never stops. On your station, 710 ESPN. Here's Laferne Cusack. This is 710 ESPN. And I'm Laferne Cusack. I'm speaking with the well-known celebrity chef, David Ruggiero. We're talking all about the great things you can cook for the big game and more. Now, you said that you have cooked for five U.S. presidents. What yeah. was one of the favorite dishes you have made and for whom? It was a uh, the president of uh, of uh, Philippines had been, his name was Aquino, had been uh, assassinated. And right as immediately after, his wife took over to be the president of Philippines. And uh, she came to New York to meet with uh, Ronald Reagan. And they stayed at the Peninsula Hotel on Fifth Avenue, which was directly across the street from the Caravelle. And uh, we got a call that uh, they wanted to have lunch at La Caravelle. And uh, at the time, the owner of La Caravelle was infamous. He had not allowed Jacqueline Kennedy, when she was the first lady, into the restaurant because she wore pants. Because mm. back then, mm-hmm. women couldn't wear pants. He was famous for throwing everybody out. So he said he would not close the restaurant. He'd give them a table, but that's as far as he would go. And they accepted. So at the dinner, I did a uh, restaurant. I did a, a baby lamb chops that I wrapped in, in potato and mm. roasted. So the, 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 the lamb chop itself was completely wrapped in potato. And it was, uh, it's been a, it's been copied since then, but back then that was like a, not not been seen before. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was only 25 at the time. Wow! I had just become the chef, and uh, I didn't realize you know, there was secret service in the kitchen. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I saw my back was to the where the people come down into the kitchen, and I saw the secret service kind of stiffen up. And I turned around, and standing right behind me was Ronald Reagan. Oh, bigger than life. Wow. Bigger than life. And he shook my hand. And I said, goodness, my guy, you know me. You've been talking to me for 10 minutes and you know I can't keep my mouth shut. (laughs) I couldn't say two words. My tongue was frozen in my mouth. And he was so gracious to me. And he thanked me and he couldn't believe that in such a famous French restaurant, there was actually an American. And about uh, three, four days later, I got a card. Now, normally when you get a card from the White House, It's one of these, somebody just, it's a printed card, thanks a lot, Mm -hmm. and uh, don't call me again. But this (laughs) one was actually written by Ronald Reagan, and he wanted to detail how much he loved the lamb and this and that. And that is something, to the day I die, I will never forget. I mean, I've had a lot of memorable, I've fed a lot of famous people, but that was something that was, I was, I'd I'd never get awestruck. Mm -hmm. Believe me when I'm telling you, LaFerne, I was awestruck. That was a very special moment for me. Oh, that's great. So you say that you created this this meal with wrapping the potato around the lamb. uh, And you had previously said that the gentleman, the chef that you worked with before, changed the trajectory of uh, how we cook food now, correct? Absolutely. Okay, so... Gerard changed it all. The way every person... Now, I'm not talking about ethnic cooking, per se, like Indian or Chinese or something. I'm talking about Western cuisine. He changed Western cuisine forever. You know, he changed the way sauces were made. He changed the way he changed certain combinations, like there were certain things that were never put together. That today, you don't even think twice about. He changed the way a chef lived, the way a chef made his life. 
and so forth. I mean, he was, at that time, there was about five chefs in France that got together, but he really was, like, I, I say he was the creator incarnate. Mm. He just was beyond belief to watch this man. And he's in his late 80s now. He's still going strong. And uh, the restaurant itself is an old Roman spa that was uh, Napoleon the first wife had, uh, had, had anointed it, that she loved the spa. And it fell into ruins. And his wife's family owned it. And he took it over and he turned it into an oasis. Mm. I mean, uh, in the middle of nowhere, that where the world... The world comes there to, to feed. I mean, uh, to just take notice of his creations. Yeah. Is that is that type of mentality, like, I, I know you said that you played sports growing up and, you know, played football and boxing. That type of energy and drive, do you put that into your work? I put that into my work. But not only do I put that into my work, he taught, you know, chef, as well. he made being a chef uh, paramount to being any professional mm. and educated for you. Although we're not, most chefs don't go to college, but some of them do, but it made us into a profession that was not looked down upon. You know, in the 1940s and 30s, and it was, you know, it was thought of as beneath, it was not, it was not considered something that you aspired to. You didn't aspire. If your children wanted to become a cook in the 1930s, 40s, he gave a swift kick in the behind. Were you crazy? <laughs> Go to college. Right. He changed it where today there are so many websites, so many TV shows, so many, all about the chef. And, you know, I always, it always amazed me, and this is the truth over the years, all the people that worked for me, how many professionals, including lawyers and so forth, gave up their profession to work in the kitchen. Personally, I thought they were out of their mind, <laughs> but they did it. But it's something that it's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to throw cold water on it. <laughs> it's a very, it's, it's, there's no more holidays for you. Oh, there's yeah. no more vacations. You're not going to sit down at Thanksgiving dinner. You know, it doesn't exist for us. We work every holiday. We work every weekend. You know, we work, work, work. I worked for 30 years from 7.30 in the morning in the kitchen to 11.30 at night, six days a week, and sometimes seven. And that's something that if you don't love it, mm -hmm. you're not going to last. But if you do, if you do grasp hold of it and embrace it, Gerard showed you the way to the top to make more than a good living, to really aspire. You, know, you aspire to it. There are rewards at the end. And that man helped create that that. You know, that pot of gold at the end, that there is something, although none of us really, you can't spend that, it's, you can't dedicate your life that way just for money. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Right. It's got to be much more than that. Well, um, I was talking to you before we came on air about the movie Burnt with Bradley Cooper and how much I learned about that industry, about, you know, I, I call it the eye of the tiger and how cutthroat that industry is. Thank God I'm not behind the stove anymore. As a chef, because I go to jail. You know, back in the, I threw more plates at cooks, and I, I mean, I, it's not something I'm proud of. I, I'm going to tell you the truth, and I'm not proud of this. Mm -hmm. I make more men and women, adults, cry. The standing in their face, intimidation, and I'll tell you why. I didn't do that. I'm not proud of it. But this is a profession that we are rated constantly. 
There's someone always trying to ra- right. is going to raid us. And, but unfortunately, it's incognito. You don't know who these people are. So if you serve the wrong meal to the wrong person, you know, to, to open a restaurant today, you're talking millions of dollars. If you, like in New York, I, I can only, I didn't never, I never had a restaurant on the West Coast or so far. I was in Manhattan. And to open a restaurant in Manhattan today, you need three, five, seven, eight, ten. I was a partner at Maxine's with a very famous designer. His name was Pierre Cardin. And Pierre put up $14 million to design that restaurant. Wow. And that is in, in 1984. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And if we would have lost, you know, you lose a star. It's over. Mm-hmm. Your investment's gone. So that type of pressure, that constant pressure, not, not everything has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Your fuse is very short. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's much worse. You look at that movie, Burnt, that's, that's the minor leagues. Forget about it. Really? It's, it's, it is inconceivably worse that the, the pressure on a cook today in the kitchen, the way to, the way I treated the cooks, I, I'm ashamed of it. But I had Maxime's, I had 125 in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. There was never a word spoken. How could I have 125 people working and everybody talking? They never hear me. Mm-hmm. I had 125. Everything was spotless, quiet. The only thing you heard was the chopping of the, the knife, the clanking of the pots. And the only other thing you heard was, we chef. The only thing a cook is allowed to say in the kitchen is we chef. That's it. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to say anything else. You were, you were told something, you answer we chef. That's the end. And that's the regiment. The, but I love that. Mm-hmm. I was drawn to that, the militaristic regiment of the kitchen. I just, I was a lost kid in Brooklyn. I was a bad kid. And when I saw that, it was like someone had put a beacon from heaven and says, look, Stupid, follow me. This is the way. It's just, it's just I'm going to save you. And luckily, I followed it. And uh, But it is much worse than them. I'm not, I'm not saying that to, to, to impress your listeners and so forth. Mm-hmm. But it is a very, very difficult job to do. And the people that think they're going to become a cook, and in two, three years, they're going to be on Food Network, you're in for a, a revolting development. It doesn't work that way. Right. And this is very true of a lot of professions, but it's extremely true of working in a kitchen. I was talking to a friend about, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant and his drive and his his motivation and just that eye of the mamba. And I was thinking about it coming in, talking with you to be a chef. You have to have that. You have to be extremely focused. There's a lot of similarities, you know. When I played football, it was uh, not being conditioned, made cowards of us all. That's what the head coach would say. Wow. If you weren't conditioned, that made you a coward. It would turn you, during the heat of the game, into a coward. Kobe Bryant, I, I read stories. Now, you, the stories come out that after games, days off, when everybody else was gone, he'd be in the, 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 the gym shooting 500 jump shots. He didn't hit those jump shots the way he did, just out of pure talent. This man put incredible, um, you know, there was, it's more than work. There's a, there's a, like a, a passion that just cannot be satisfied. Right. There's a drive to be perfect that will never be satisfied. And that is true of man like Kobe Bryant. And in some ways it's true of working in the great chefs in the kitchen that you're never satisfied. 
nothing is good enough. And it's, like I said, it's true in, in a lot of the sports, a lot of the different, uh, when you're the best of whatever, pick a profession, the best. You have to, you just can't be, never be satisfied. And that was very true. But the difference is, in a kitchen, you have to deal with cuts, burns, intense heat. In, I mean, heat that, you know, I look at Arizona in the dead of winter, the kitchen was 115, 120 degrees in the kitchen. Mm. Forget about the summer. You know, working 14, 16 hours a day in that heat with someone screaming at you for 16 hours a day, everything's going to be perfect, perfect, perfect. Either you're born of that or you're not. Mm-hmm. And you can't aspire to become that. It's just got to be inbred in you. Some screw, you got to be some kind. I always say you got to be some kind of screwed up human being. Normal people don't act like that. <laughs> and uh, no, it's true. I wow. mean, normal people don't. We'll just say, forget about it. I'm, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And uh, but at the end of the tunnel, there is a there is an award, and it's a great for cooking. I can only speak of cooking. It is a great, satisfying award. You know, we're egomaniacs. We're just rabid maniacs. We want that. It's better than sex. Serving that meal that gets you to three stars and people will say your name better than sex. Can you describe a meal that you made that blew your mind? I'm going to tell you nothing what I did. I'm going to tell you a meal that blew my mind. I went to when Gerard, when I was going to go back to the U.S., Gerard said to me, what do you leave? I'm leaving in two days. He said, okay, I'm going to give you a treat. Tomorrow morning, you're going to come with me. And uh, we're going to go pigeon hunting. Okay. So in the morning, at 3 o'clock in the morning, he's got a Range Rover and uh, with no doors. It looks just like a Victor Mature movie. And they got these <laughs> these got cowboy hats on and these jackets. And looks like we're going hunting in the safari. And uh, we go out and we go in the middle of, the middle of nowhere in, in France. And uh, he was in the Burgundy area. There's a very famous surgeon. Uh, not far away. And uh, make a long story short, I kept asking, where's the guns? And he kept telling me, where's the guns? When we got to these blinds, I had to carry this box of cheeses and wines and stuff. And this is the way chefs hunt, right? He's got six other guys. They're all the best chefs in the area. And then he's got a pigeon tied at the top of the, the, the tree and there's a rope and when these other pigeons come they pull the rope and the live pigeon is wings flap and these flock of pigeons get drawn in and they throw nets over them and they, you know we, we've caught like a few hundred pigeons and we're sitting on the forest floor and we eat these cheeses and wines and Gerard turns to his, his uh, friends and says oh my friends mon ami uh, I'm famished yeah, of course, you just ate about 14 pounds of cheese. Well, of course, we've got to go eat something. <laughs> so he had a restaurant behind his three, his, his oasis. He had a country restaurant called La Fermo Grieve. It's there now. And Gerard believed that any cook, any cook, and that's true here, even Americans on barbecues, the truest cook knew how to conquer a flame of real wood fire. Mm-hmm. The truest cook could cook on that. And in this restaurant, the Fermo Grieve, he had a giant fireplace. And everything is cooked in this fireplace. Nothing else. And there's no other stoves in the place. And before we got there, he had taken a loin of pork, a whole loin of pork, two days before. And he had marinated it in salt and herbs. And then he submerged it. After he marinated for 24 hours, he submerged it in pork fat. And then he cooked it at 200 degrees for 12 hours till it was almost falling apart. Wow. Right? Then he tied it up. 
Now we come from hunting, right? Now jump forward. Here comes these seven morons with 200 pigeons into this restaurant, right? And here is this piece of pork that's been marinated for 24 hours, cooked for 12, tied up, and over this beautiful plant, the, the smell of this fire, it was turning on a spit over this fire, right? Mm -hmm. And now remember, it's cooked in fat. So there's pork fat that's dripping out. And underneath the pork is this big black skillet. And he's got these creamy white potatoes that they had picked in the forest or in his farm nearby. And they're cooking in the pork fat. Now, you know what people say about cooking in pork fat. Nothing better. Forget about <laughs> it. The swine. <laughs> so here are these creamy white potatoes cooking in the seasoned pork fat with this pork crisping under the fire. And so he takes it, cooked for like two hours over the fire. It's crispy succulent slice this pork with these creamed potatoes and then we're not we're not savages right mm. so he serves a little salad with it a frise in french they call frise it's like a, a chicory salad with it right with thick lardons of pork in it he didn't get enough pork yet so he put some lardons of pork in the salad this meal was super simple okay mm -hmm. but to this day 25 30 years later i can still taste it Mm. I've been to the greatest. I've eaten Beijing, China, Tokyo, everywhere in the world. I've eaten with the best, the biggest of the biggest, okay? Mm -hmm. To this day, I have never tasted a meal like that meal that day. That was the greatest meal I have ever tasted. It was, and it just speaks of sometimes the greatest things are the most simplest things done in a great way and using what god gives you the wood fire we all have barbecues in our backyard and stuff but it just gives you that's what i believe is what's the greatest of true cooking you know greatest chef takes the simplest things and does it beautifully because you can't hide right. you make a mistake you can't hide it when you do it very simple and to that day to answer your question after 15 minutes of my baloney that was the greatest <laughs> that was really for me the, the greatest meal i gotta oh, tell you wow that's yeah that takes a lot of time and patience uh, oh man but it's true you know in the french kitchen years ago there's the wear the hat you know, you, you know, those white toque, the tall hats, mm -hmm. those hats have 99 pleats in them. Every hat has 99 pleats. Oh. You know, those little folds in the hats. Right. Years ago in a French kitchen, you had them show a chef how to cook an egg 99 ways before you got the hat. Oh. Uh, that might not be true today. But back in the day, you had to show a chef 99 ways to cook an egg. And believe me, that's not easy. Before you earned that toque in a French kitchen. Interesting. So it's something to be said about simplicity in cooking. David, what was it like when you got your popular show on PBS? I had gotten picked. Robert Mondavi, the famous winemaker in Napa Valley, had decided that he was going to look for the 13 best chefs in America. And he was going to he was going to do a 13 part series on PBS. Right. So each of the 13 chefs would get one episode. And he picked me as one of the 13 chefs. And uh, so I did my my episode and at the end of the show the, the producer said to me because i i don't got no filter sometimes i say <laughs> things i shouldn't i don't shut up i don't know when to shut up right my i thought my wife says it all the time my god he never knows how to shut up <laughs> so at the end of the show the producer says to me hey you how, how was you like your own show oh wow yeah go ahead twist my arm tell me <laughs> of course i want my own show so uh, first they says well tell the stories about france i said listen to me 
I'm not going to do a cooking show and a cookbook about cooking, that kind of cooking, because I want people to buy my book. Who the hell is going to buy this book of fancy French cooking? <laughs> Nobody's going to buy it. So I'm Italian-American, and I'm damn proud of it. So my first PBS series I did called Little Italy, where I went around to the different neighborhoods in Little Italy, and I had guests and stuff, and we cooked in people's houses and this and that, and I showed you the Italian feast and stuff. And it was a big success, huge success, and I did a cookbook with it. And then uh, at the time, there was a show on Food Network, and uh, there was a wonderful young, uh, wonderful, uh, beautiful chef. Her name was Sarah Moulton. And Sarah had a show on there called Cooking Live, and it was a, a one-hour live show where you took callers could call you up and ask you questions while you're on the air cooking. Well, my friend, you could appreciate that. That's not easy. Yeah. To do a one-hour show. So after a while... Poor Sarah couldn't do it every day. She was shy. She just couldn't do it. So the producer, I knew the producer. She says to me, Dave, I saw you show on, on uh, PBS at Little Italy, uh, your school ball. How about you? You want to come on and do the show? Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? So I went on the show. And again, I got no filters. So I, I like abused a few people. Some guy here. You know, a few people call me up with stupid questions and I <laughs> abused them on the show. And at the end of like two, three episodes, I, I got called again and I went on the show. And right before the, we were going to air, the, the head of programming called me into her office. Uh -oh. I said, this is where I'm going to get thrown. They're going to tell me, don't you ever come back again. <laughs> and she walks in the show. I walk in her office and she says to me, uh, her name was Eileen Oputat, wonderful woman. She says to me, uh, how would you like your own show? Mm. I says, what is this, some kind of gig? Is there like a camera in the back or something? <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? Of course I like my own show. But, so anyway, she says, people, she says, you know, since you've been on this cooking life, the letters coming in have been unbelievable. More than 50% of the people hate your guts. <laughs> hate my guts. And you want me to go on the air? You know, you're my own show. She says, let me tell you something. The people that hate you, Watch you more than the people that love you. Mm. And I looked at the letters. People says to me, "Where you that phony, uh, that phony uh, accent? A phony accent? I got no phony accent." <laughs> anyway, so material to go is is there, and then I go out in the uh, the world, and uh, you know, I I I, I did for the, the search for the greatest meatball in America with this Italian comedian. Uh, Pat Cooper, who was on uh, in the movies with Robert De Niro, and I know, analyzed this, analyzed that. I did all kinds of crazy things, and I was a big success on television. And uh, you know, I went on. Yeah, eventually, I ended up owning thirty restaurants. Wow! And, and then, David, you moved into writing horror novels. Ha what the <laughs> heck? <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> You're using yourself I up. I'm so confused. You know, I, I'll tell you something very sad. Very sad. This is not jokes. Five five years ago, I lost my oldest son. So, so this damn op opioid crisis oh, here. So sorry. LaFerne, no, no. I don't say it for that reason because every parent that suspects, any of you people out there listening right now, if you suspect that your child is doing it, don't do what I did. Lock them up. Do what you got to do. Save them. Because there is no tomorrow. When you wait one day too long, there is no tomorrow. And I lost my son, and I didn't have the heart to go back in the kitchen. I turned away from that, what I loved. I could never do it again, because my son had started to work with me. Mm. I couldn't, everywhere I looked in the kitchen, I saw him. I couldn't do it no more. I sat around, and I didn't know what to do with my life. 
And I'm a kid that played football and fought in the ring. I never went to school. Really, I never went. Mm -hmm. But one day I sat down and I started. One thing I am, and I took this from my parents and my grandparents and so forth. The Italian-Americans are great storytellers. Mm -hmm. I'm not a writer. I'm a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And when I sat down at the thing, and I'm a, I love horror, I started to write a thing, and a little bit here, a little bit there. All of a sudden, before I know it, it's a book. Me, what am I going to do with this thing? It really is pretty good. I don't have an agent. And there was a platform on uh, on the internet where you put your, your, your manuscript up, and agents look, uh, publishers look at it. Mm -hmm. And all, all and behold, some guy calls me and says to me, hey, you. Well, I want to publish your book. Is, what, is this a gig or what? I mean, is this cameras in the, 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 the closet or something? And lo and behold, God bless them, this small but wonderful publisher, Black Rose Writing, they uh, they uh, published a book. The book uh, aired this past Halloween. Come on, horror, Halloween, perfect time to release a book. Book did very well. And I have another book coming out. Uh, the Black Rose Writing, publishing another book coming out this June. It's, uh, believe it or not, Lafonte, you're sitting down right now. <laughs> I'm sitting down, David. I'm sitting down. <laughs> it's a romance. What? It's not a romance. It's called Say Goodbye and Good Night. Coming out June 11th. It's, uh, let me plug my horror. Wait a minute. I want to back it up. Yes. Halloween, the horror, a wistful tale of God's men and monsters. Ooh. <laughs> it's on audio book, e-book, every kind of book, book, book. You can get anywhere you want. Scared of living the lights out of you. Yeah. Now. My romance, oh, I say it's about a young Italian, you imagine, not far from the heart, right? Young Italian kid, <laughs> right? Growing up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, in the year 1977. 1977, the most tumultuous year in the history of Brooklyn. There's a, the son of Sam, the boy, the famous blackout in New York, um, Saturday Night Fever. It was like, if you look at the years 1977, you say, my God, you look up in the heavens and say, God, couldn't you have to distribute it between another couple of years? It's all 1977. <laughs> right. Anyway, this kid is a fighter. He meets the girl of his dreams, right? A young Italian girl. And uh, I, I incorporate a lot of real people in the book and in a lot of real places. And like I had said, The Son of Sam was a big thing happening in 1977. And the title of the book comes from a threatening letter that the son of Sam sent, Jimmy Breslin, who was a famous writer at the Daily News, and he signed it, say goodbye and good night. Mm -hmm. That's it. I'm not telling you no more because I'll give up the story. <laughs> oh, wow. But yeah. It's a, it's a fun read. Both of my books are easy, fun reads. And uh, I have 42 children to take care of, so please, everybody go out and buy a book. <laughs> you know, I got holes in my underwear and my socks, so I need money. <laughs> Well, the Wistful Tale of Gods, Men and Monsters, it won uh, for Best Horror Novel for a Maxi Award in 2019. Yeah, I got Pencraft, uh, too, Best Horror. So go figure, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry. speechless, uh, speechless. But I, I, listen, I had fun writing it, and I think everybody will have fun reading it. It's the kind of book, in a, it's almost like in a classic horror it's it's not that like gory or nothing like that. It's the kind of book every Halloween you're going to take out and read to your children and then your grandchildren. It's a real place in upstate New York, a real cemetery that's been voted really as one of the ten most wanted places in America. And uh, it's 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 a, really it's a fun book. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, if you'd like to, to kind of say, well, I don't want, I don't like too much horror. It's not that much horror. I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, one 
One reviewer said, if Tim Burton was writing a book, this would be the one he would write. So if that gives you a little oh, that's bit cool. of yeah. kind of look, view of what the book is like. Within your writing, is that how you help deal with the death of your son? Yes. So I, uh, it was those two books allowed me, opened the door for me to write my memoir. Mm-hmm. My memoir not, was not an easy thing to write. You know, with all the laughing and the joking and this and that, I was a bad guy. And you can't tell half a story. Either you come clean or you don't. And those two books gave me the confidence, especially the success of the first book, the horror book, to say, okay, I'm going to write it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty horrific. And, uh, you know, growing up in Brooklyn in those days, I grew up in a, a place called Vanderveer Projects, Notion and Newkirk, which... Anybody who's a, a fan of Biggie Smalls, he raps about Nostrand Avenue. That was always Nostrand Avenue, Nostrand Avenue. And uh, it was a tough, tough. I mean, by the time I was 10, I was arrested six times. Wow. And uh, my uncle was a famed fighter, real pro fighter. Mm-hmm. And he grabbed the hole of me and says, you're, you're a tough guy. Well, I'll take you. And he brought me. He saved me. Mm-hmm. He brought me into the gym. An old Jewish trainer. Name's Izzy Zerling, 80, 80 years old, had fought 600 pro fights, and believe me, he looked like it. Mm. And he took me off the street, and that, it was a youth center, Izzy Zerling's youth center. In that youth center, you had two world champions at the time. Wow. You imagine, you tell somebody today, a youth center on Church Avenue in Brooklyn has two world champions. Right. And that was the truth. And he saved my life. But uh, it's a... It's it's coming out in the fall, and uh, it's called Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood, wow. and uh, it's actually been optioned for a film. Oh, that's so, great. Uh, keep it in mind. Yes, absolutely. The 42 children, don't forget the 42 children, I need money. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David. Okay, so let's go over some of the uh, foods that we can make during the big game. You have your Super Bowl taquitos. They're killer. And let me tell you something else. Mm -hmm. If you make them, you make too many. Wrap them in plastic and freeze them. They freeze very well. Take them out freeze. You could could use them later on, a week or two later. They cook great. They are, and they are just delicious. Yes, they look delicious. And then you have your jalapeno popper dip. Yeah, don't be afraid to put some extra pop in your pop. Yes, definitely. <laughs> you need some flavor. Come on. Yeah, baby. And then the buffalo chicken dip, because, you know, you can't go without the chicken. Hey, meatball spaghetti, buffalo wing Super Bowl. <laughs> Do I have to say more? <laughs> and the Kansas City burnt end brisket sliders. That looks so delicious. Oh, to Kansas City. Come on. They got a good quarterback there. Yeah, they're in it. <laughs> and the San Francisco crab cake sliders, who you say, they're going all the way. Nikki Bosa, going to kick some Bosa. <laughs> and I think they're going to pull it out. Defense wins championships. Awesome. And you can find all these recipes on your Instagram, on David's Instagram, on your Facebook, on your website, everywhere. David. Yeah, open the window. I'll yell them out to you. <laughs> David Ruggiero.com. R U G G E R I O.com. It's such so a much. pleasure speaking with you, David. 
I had a lot of fun with fun. You're the best. I really appreciate everything. Thank you. I appreciate you. And have a great Sunday. Let's go, baby. San Francisco. <laughs> All right. I'm Laferne Cusack. This is 710 ESPN. You've been listening to The Experience with Laferne Cusack. Getting the residents of Los Angeles, Orange County, and all of Southern California closer to their community. It's The Experience with Laferne Cusack on 710 ESPN.